Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. Right now, China is number one. It's not close. Uh, they have a strategic plan to overtake us economically. So existentially, long term, they're the largest threat to our national security, bar none. The Russians, very more tactical, very more um, interested, but noisier, louder, and they get caught more frequently. What do you think is the most important lesson from what the Russians did in 2016? That they're willing to do it again. People can argue all day long whether or not it had an impact on the election. My answer is it's they've already won. It's on cable news every night, in the paper every day. Putin has accomplished his mission. Bill Evanina is currently the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, an organization he has led for four years. In that job, he serves as our nation's top counterintelligence official, protecting America's secrets, both those in government and those in the private sector. Bill is a career FBI officer. He also served as the chief of CIA's counterespionage group, one of the most important operational units at the agency. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Bill and talk about his center and all the threats posed to the United States by foreign intelligence services. We will be right back with that conversation after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity to high-energy lasers to quantum computers, Raytheon is there. Advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Bill, welcome to the show. Uh, It is great to have you. I think our listeners are in for a very important discussion. Welcome. Thanks, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Bill, I have not been to your headquarters in Maryland, but I'm told that there's a museum of sorts there called the Wall of Shame. What is that? Great question. And we have what I think is a really unique memento. It's about a 60-foot wall uh, depicting the history of espionage and sabotage inside of threats. And it's um, with little bios and graphical depictions of each individual who betrayed this country all the way back to Benedict Arnold. And it really gives the employees of, of NCSC and the ODNI, for that matter, 
a reminder every day why we do what we do. And we believe uh, we're expanding it. We have some artifacts. So you have some typewriters, some uh, stuff from, from Ames and Hanson now the, to beef it up. But it's a great reminder for the folks who work counterintelligence why we do it. And, and what does it take to get on that wall? Uh, bad things, right? It takes you betraying your country, whether that be... You have uh, to be convicted? Uh, uh, yes. So it would be right through the legal process. So for us, legally, we have to have the ability. So, for instance, there are some people out there who maybe have leaked some classified documents who aren't been yet through the legal process who are not on the wall yet. So Snowden's not on the wall. Uh, Mr. Snowden is not on the wall. Uh, oh, in, I would tell in, you he should aspects, be on the wall. Right, and I would concur. <laughs> you know, he's metaphorically on our wall. Okay, excellent, excellent. Bill, you are a career FBI official, and I don't want to embarrass you, um, but you're one of the Bureau's best, so much so that you were under active consideration to replace Jim Comey as director when he left. So congratulations on that. Thank you, Mike. And one of the things that I've seen when you've talked about this is that you don't talk about the disappointment in not getting the job. You talk about the honor of being considered. And I want to tell you, for somebody who was in exactly the same position, at CIA, that really resonates with me because people would say to me all the time, gosh, you must be so disappointed. And it was just the opposite. I would concur, Mike. And I would sometimes, I joke with my family and friends that it's the best of both worlds, right? To be considered and have that humbleness to it and the, the flattery um, of the hard work you've done. But I also have someone else selected to do the hard work, right? right. It's, a, it's, a, it's a win-win, I believe. Right. And right. Uh, Director Ray's doing a great job and I wish him the best of luck. But they chose the right guy for the job. Um, Bill, one of the cases you worked on was the Russian illegals case. Can you tell our listeners about that case? Sure. That was a unique experience for me uh, when I came down to Washington, D.C., out of the Newark field office to work on this case where we had uh, 10 plus individuals in the U.S. who were U.S. citizens who were really spies for the Russian government, right? They worked for the SBR and the illegals network. So they were here for many, many years uh, under deep cover, acting as regular citizens, working our community doing spotting assessing of U.S. government employees and others on behalf of the Russian Federation. The case started in 1999, and the FBI, working with our partners in CIA, were able to monitor these individuals for 10 years. And then uh, we had a great uh, one-year planning operation for the uh, takedown and arrest of those individuals, which resulted in the spy swap with uh, Vladimir Putin. So how much operational activity were they involved in? Quite a bit. And, and I think if you went through each set of couples individually, they'd be in different types. I can, I can give you our Boston couple and the folks that came in here to Alexandria and Arlington. They were living on the same floor with very important folks who had top secret clearances. They were spotting and assessing those individuals, going cocktail parties, dinners. Uh, we had folks at the U.N. that were uh, being hobnobby with our secretary of U.N.'s uh, support staff. So there are a lot of categories we look at as being in the danger zone, but their ability to get up close and personal to uh, critical folks, not only in the U.S. government, but in their contract community. So there's, a, there's an important link here, right, between the recent assassination attempt in the U.K., Russian assassination attempt in the U.K. using chemical weapons against a former Russian intelligence officer and the illegals case, right? Direct correlation, correct. And could you tell our folks about that? So he was one of the uh, four um, defector sources that we repatriated back here to the U.S. He was uh, he stayed with, uh, in the United Kingdom, and the other three are here safely in the U.S. So we obviously, in the intelligence community, had the same concern for those individuals here in the U.S. as they did in the U.K., and we uh, do everything we can uh, as a community, and to include the CIA, to do the best possible protection vectors for those individuals who are back here on safe soil. So the Russians have now done an assassination in the U.K., and now they have attempted another. Do you think they would ever try that here? 
Um, it's I, a big, I would, it'd be a big would, step for them, right? I would hope not, and I think the argument would be, why would it be a big step? So, to me, the value proposition for them doing in the U.K. is not that far from here in the yeah. U.S., right? And I think the more we have, and I look at this as a juxtaposition of the environment we're in. So, I would say five years ago, that thought would never cross my mind. Two years ago, now, it's getting closer. But if you fast forward three years from now, with all the disinformation campaign that's going on, all the capabilities that the Russians are using on us, three years from now, maybe it's not that far-fetched, and maybe Vladimir Putin can get away with it. That's my concern as a slippery slope, Ron. Okay, Bill, let's, um, let's step back and look at the various threats posed by foreign intelligence services. And I'm going to ask you to parse the threat in a couple different ways in a minute. But let me start by asking you to characterize the degree of the overall threat we face today versus other times in our history. So, Mike, this is a good question. And we just presented our uh, national threat prioritization assessment to the president for signature, which we delivered to Congress, which lays out those particular threats for our country as we see them now. And there's some usual characters in there, but there's also some new venues, which we'll talk about. But most importantly, counterintelligence, countering the intelligence has really grown dramatically in the last five to six years where we have acknowledged what you and I knew for a long time, but the whole country approach with respect to cyber being as a vector for these organizations, as well as critical infrastructure, uh, supply chain, all these venues that five, 10 years ago weren't really commonplace in the space, they are now, and which makes it more important to look at it holistically. OPM really opened our eyes to the ability this of is our... the hack uh, by the Chinese of the applications, right, right for... 21 million files on U.S. citizens... Right. Um, the ability of our adversaries to look outside of your intelligence community for data that they believe valuable. So it really opened our eyes in the government to say, wow, there's valuable data other places. So in, with respect to the prioritization, and right now China is number one. It's not close. Uh, they have a strategic plan to overtake us economically. Uh, I believe we're in an economic war with them. Uh, they have declared that so war. So this is the first question I wanted to ask you. So who who are the main players here? China's number one. So existentially, long-term, they're the largest threat to our national security, bar none. So it's not even close. They, um, however, and we'll juxtapose them with Russia in a second, their processes are more economic-based to be the number one economic power in the world, to not have a global equal like us, but to overtake us. And they look at that from semiconductors, supercomputing, quantum technology, the, the persistent theft of our intellectual property and trade secrets, which is critical. The human-enabled cyber capabilities they have for insider threats. Uh, we just The FBI just made an arrest two weeks ago uh, for General Electric. So that continues, and it's a persistent thousand grains of sand. They have a lot of resources they could throw at us, and they hit our academia, our industry, our research development, and obviously our government. Uh, the FBI has arrested double-digit individuals the last year or so, all for spying on behalf of China. And more aggressive today than they've ever been before. More aggressive than ever, right? And I think uh, there's a combination of factors that go with that. But yes, but I would say not only more aggressive, Mike, but more diversified in how they attack us with their non-traditional actors. And for your listeners, that's those individuals who are here who aren't intelligence officers, who are engineers and businessmen and, and, and academic professors and such who steal our proprietary data. Now, the Chinese, when they attack our, or look at our critical infrastructure or they do things, they're doing it because of economic purposes. They want to be better than us economically and they want to be the global power. Versus Russia, all their activity is because they don't like capitalism, they don't like democracy, and they want to defeat it. The Chinese need democracy for them to succeed. They need the U.S. to have a solid capitalist organized process here so they can compete and they can facilitate their 
financial aspects. Russians don't need in that. They're not competitors with us or anyone else uh, economically. They're more of a destructive mindset. So I would say they're more tactical at their interest, more military-based, uh, but their efforts and interests are to strictly demoralize democracy and defeat the capitalist mindset. So two questions. Who brings more resources to it? And then who brings more sophistication to it? And is is any of that starting to change? Both China answers. Uh, they bring ungodly resources that we can't handle right now because they have, uh, for instance, just in the student population, there's 350,000 students that come to the U.S. every year to study. Majority of those are legitimate, but a lot of them aren't, right? They have a significant number of Ph.D. plus students that are here uh, working our most sensitive technologies. So they have the numbers, the resources, they have the will and the intent, and capabilities are out of this world with respect to cyber and their intent to have a holistic mindset, whole government mindset, how to take from us what they need. The Russians, very more tactical, very more um, interested, but noisier, louder, and they get caught more frequently. What about the Iranians? So the Iranians have been and will continue to be a threat with respect to dual-use technology. They will always look to find avenues to obtain illegally here in the U.S., uh, resources, whether it be nanotechnology uh, or any kind of technology that can be used as a dual-use technology to weaponize their systems and their military in, in Iran. So from a cyber perspective, they're very capable. They have a lot of intent, but we don't see them as often in anything other than critical infrastructure here in the U.S. And have you seen any change in their intelligence behavior since we walked away from the nuclear deal? Well, not since that. It's been all that, not that uh, long ago. But no, I, and I don't expect we see that. We, I, I'll do the. We haven't had an official assessment yet, but we do believe uh, that that's a tool they can use to maybe push the envelope with this uh, decision to get out of that deal. But we'll wait and see how that happens. The Iranians are very, very sophisticated, and the utilization of Lebanese Hezbollah helps them along, around the globe. So they have just as many tools and techniques as the Chinese and Russians, but just with different intent. Yeah. What about the North Koreans? North Koreans are, are very. Um, Sophisticated with their cyber capabilities, that's it. From the human perspective, they're not on par with anybody else. But as we saw with the Sony hack, they're capable of doing significant destruction if they wanted to go there. Uh, they have the, and both the intent and capability to do what they want to do, but on a much smaller scale. So would you put anybody else on your, on your worry list besides those four? Interestingly, I would put two areas on that list. Number one would be Cuba, mm-hmm. and I'd say the island of Cuba. Because the capabilities, as you know, Mike, with the Cuban intelligence service for decades, are silent but deadly. But when you add the amount of Russian intelligence services now and Chinese intelligence services on the island of Cuba, it becomes a very problematic geographic area for us. And as you know, to get our analytic capabilities and our offensive capabilities together, look at three different countries on a very small island is problematic. Do we have any idea yet what was making American diplomats ill in Havana and then in uh... China now? So we're still working on it. And there's been some other locations. We've had similar situations. The FBI, CIA, NSA, State Department have had a joint investigation on that, which is not yet concluded. And we're still looking towards that. And I think the folks in our business, Mike, are pretty confident what we're going to find at the end of that, if we can find the evidence of that. But I think if it was an intelligence-based operation, it'll be hard to attribute. Right, right. But, so, but, but I will say, Mike, let's think about your question. Who benefits for the U.S. not being in Cuba? Right. Plenty of countries. Right, right. Um, and the Cubans would let them operate. That's correct. Right. So anybody else besides Cuba for the list? Uh, the country of Africa. Africa. And then I would say Mexico is right below that. The country of Mexico. And, and again, so that would be people operating op- there. Yes, the Chinese and Russians operating in the country of Mexico and Cuba, as well as in Africa. Okay. So um, the second question, then, and we've touched a little bit on this, but we can go deeper, is in conducting all these intelligence activities against us, 
talk a little bit about objectives. So you talked about China wanting to make themselves stronger largely through economic theft and Russia trying to weaken us in a variety of different ways. Are there other objectives besides those that we need to think about? Well, yes. And I think if you look at China holistically, you know, and you, you, you parse the mosaic into not only the economic mindset, but what they are doing strategically from a military perspective in the South China Sea, it, I look at that as all part of the whole strategic plan of the country of China. And when we look at it from the U.S. perspective, and I know uh, you'll appreciate this from your previous position, Mike, we look at it in the U.S. as we're really bifurcated between the government, private sector, and the criminal element. That's not the case in China and Russia. So we are really competing against a unified entity in China and Russia that poses a threat to us that we're not familiar with. But with the military uh, usefulness and not only on land and sea, but in space right now, the competition with China is extremely uh, vigorous and persistent right now. So you look at the counterintelligence apparatus that supports those. When we are fighting for area and supremacy in space, as well as on land and sea and with the South China Sea, the intelligence game with China is very sophisticated right now. And the Russian side of it, again, I think Vladimir Putin has not been shy about his dislike for our country and what democracy brings to the world and what NATO also does for us. The threat to him at home. The threat to him at home, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and his ability to mind meld his own people uh, are all about getting to the root of the destruction of our democratic values and ways and means that we saw in the election, as well as our capitalist society. So what do you think is the most important lesson from what the Russians did in 2016? That they're willing to do it again. I think there was an eye-awakening process for our country. You know, if you take the politics out of it, what they did was fascinating, right? And I think analytically, Mike, we look back at it. Did we think that they would be as sophisticated as they were with the Facebook? The ability, the mindset to pose battles on both sides of an issue in a small town? I don't think we could have predicted that. So the challenge now is into the midterm elections into 2020 doing an, you know, really a predictive analysis. What are they not only capable of, but what's in the realm of possibility for them and and taking the Twitter and Facebook mentality and making it uh, two years from now. It's really problematic analytically to think of what can be when they have the will, intent and the experience of success. And what I tell people all the time is if at the end of the day, people can argue all day long whether or not it had an impact on the election. My answer is it's they've already won because we have these conversations every day. It's on cable news every night in the paper every day. Putin has accomplished his mission. And I think that's the message I like to get out, but it's really difficult, as you know, to put why that's a winning factor for him. Right. You know, it's the only, it's the only time that I can remember when we've been attacked as a nation and it's torn us apart, right, which is exactly what he wanted. Exactly and he knew that he would happen. Yep. Yeah. So they're playing in the midterms right now or, or not? Or We expect them to play. Uh, I think uh, we publicly said as the United Government that we have not found the evidence yet of actually uh, what they have done and what they have not. We're concerned just as much with China as we are with Russia. Uh, we're looking for that proverbial smoking gun, but we, we don't know when that's going to happen. And as, as my boss, the DNI, said, it could just take one switch, right? It'd be one thing that we find, whether it's a, a voting machine in Alabama or whether it's a, a blackout in one city. But I look at this is think bigger. You know, what at the end of the day are they going to do? And I, we talked about the cyber threat, but what happens if they're Russian nationals or intelligence officers at a polling place? Right. So one of the things that, that just that just you said that resonated with me was there's a there's a bit of a similarity here with 9-11, which I lived through. I know you did too. We didn't see what the terrorists did on that day as a possibility, right? Taking over aircraft, 
not hijacking them, but using the aircraft as weapons, right? We didn't see that. Immediately post 9-11, we, we kept on asking ourselves, well, what else is possible, <laughs> right? What else could they think of that we haven't thought of? So it sounds sounds a bit eerily similar. Mike, we are on the same page, and I could tell you, looking back to 2001, when I was in New Jersey, coming back from the World Trade Center site, and we, we had the Flight 93, which took off out of Newark and, and crashed in Pittsburgh, we began not only the investigation of the hijackers who live in New Jersey, but the what's next. So we looked at hazmat trucks, right? Hazmat truck drivers. We looked at Iraqi citizens who are driving hazardous material in the U.S. And we thought about all these grave things. Well, if they would do this, what else can they do? We looked at mass transit. Mass... I'm not sure we're doing that right now effectively. So I'm not suggesting this, but one of the things we did at CIA post 9-11 is we brought screenwriters in from Hollywood and said, help us think about all the possibilities, right? You guys have that ability. Help us think about the possibilities. Yes, and we have done that across. I could tell you the four or five big agencies have done that to think about not only the possibilities, but what's the realm of that, that just hypothetical look like. And then, again, juxtapose it against the intelligence we're collecting around the globe. We've set out some really aggressive collection emphasis messages globally the last year to really get to those case officers and analysts around the globe that maybe aren't in Moscow or maybe they're in New Delhi or they're in South Asia, but they could ask those informants and those assets, hey, what are you hearing in your career? So I think we have to have a whole of government approach to not only identifying that hypotheticals, but getting intelligence in different areas we have not got it before. Yeah. And one of the one of the patterns, one of the Russian patterns, right, is to undertake these kind of activities in their near abroad, in their periphery, and then export them further. So we should be watching very closely what they're doing in places like Ukraine and Georgia and other places. Right? Absolutely. Especially coming here. When it comes to Mike, the, the critical infrastructure, we, we look now hard and we work with the private sector and show them what happened in Ukraine and what happened in Georgia and then how their scanning capabilities and their successes in here in the U.S. already can lead to that, right? And I think, uh, to your point, they tried on their their own citizens first, they moved to the near abroad, and they exported overseas. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Bill Evanina after a word from our sponsor. Do you hear that? That's an enemy drone being led out of U.S. airspace with a line of code. It's just one of the ways Raytheon cyber experts are helping customers stay ahead of cyber threats. Every day, we pave the way to mission success, training warfighters to succeed in the cyber domain, modernizing platforms through software innovation, protecting every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. So you said something interesting earlier, Bill, when we were talking about threat to elections, U.S. elections, you mentioned China as as something we need to worry about. Can you talk a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, so I think when you boil down you know, the Russian threat to our elections and electoral processes and uh, what we have as a democratic value, it's an influence campaign, right? Well, the Chinese have been doing that for decades, right? So we cannot look at the shiny object Russia and totally forget about what China has done for decades. So when we see the Russians now using legitimate businesses in Russia to do their uh, bidding here in the U.S., that's the China model that they've used for, for 20 years, right? So I think at the end of the day, uh, the Chinese are probably a little more strategic how they would influence your elections, but they're just as much uh, interested in doing that for different reasons that we spoke of, maybe to influence a particular uh, political party or individual they want in that might have a kinder, gentler feel towards a trade with China versus the whole we need to d- demoralize democracy. Right. But China is in the game for sure. Right, and something they've done at home for yes. ever you see them doing it in Taiwan now, and they've had some experience not with 
social media in Australia, but kind of direct political influence in Australia as well. Right. And what the Russians do not have is unlimited resources. So they have unlimited resources. You look at the op, you know, the indictment the FBI and DOJ handed out on the GRU a few months back. Well, they were spending $1.2 million a month on that campaign. Well, that's nothing for the Chinese. And the Chinese could put thousands of those resources towards any strategic plan they had to defeat a particular candidate or encourage another one. So when when you think about what industries are at risk here of intellectual property theft or of potential damage, right, from a cyber attack, talk a little bit about which industries might be most vulnerable, most at risk. Sure. For for us, uh, leading the charge here with, a, with, a, with the NSC and Congress, there's three particular sectors, Mike, that we're concerned mostly about. Number one is the energy sector. Number two is the telecommunications sector. And three is the financial sector. Those three sectors, we believe that our country must have resiliency, redundancy times 10 and able to maintain our capabilities, not only as a vital country, but our democratic and capitalist society. When you look at what we see for the, our adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese and Iranians, what they're doing here, scanning our SCADA systems and ICS systems are primarily in those three sectors. So I think both Russia and China are looking at our energy sector, our financial sector, and, those, and the Chinese are very interested in our telecommunications sectors as we move forward to 5G. Last question before we move on to the third broad issue is uh, President Xi made a commitment to President Obama that he was going to stop this economic espionage. That hasn't happened. No, and we we said this a few weeks ago as we rolled out our economic espionage uh, in cyberspace report. Uh, we saw a very slow dip, a lull in that activity uh, subsequent to 2015, but then it just kept on moving. Right? It's too successful for the Chinese to stop their their theft. Yeah. And then the third broad issue is, you know, given the countries that are playing and given what they're trying to accomplish, what are the methods that they're using that you're most concerned about? I think. When you talk about the non-traditional collector, uh, I think we've not done a great job in the intel community explaining what that is to the non-intel community folks. What's the non? What's the traditional collector? So a traditional collector is that Chinese spy who's here on diplomatic cover from the MSS or the PLA who's doing spy work undercover as a, as one of their State Department officials. What the Chinese have gotten really good at is, is the non-traditional, which is not those out-of-embassy jobs where they send over engineers, businessmen, students to do the same type of collection, recruitment, co-opting of uh, information gatherers that at, at mass scale, right, at mass scale, whether it be in the student population, engineers, the doctors, the scientists. I saw some uh, reporting recently about, uh, you know, the Thousand Talents program. There's a big intel collection, the Confucius Institutes, all of these issues uh, and programs they have to help facilitate and supplement their intelligence apparatus is very difficult to deal with. Because when you leave the intelligence community and you go into the NT50 world or you go in the private sector to try to explain how these individuals that they hire are a danger to national security, it's a very, very difficult conversation. These non-traditional collectors, do they acquire that information subtly or do they develop a relationship like a traditional operations officer, intelligence officer, and actually make a pitch at some point, we want you to work for us, or is it more subtle than it's that? It's more subtle than that. And we have not seen the actual pitch. The Chinese, uh, the, I'm going to say the last probably eight to ten years, have been really good at not letting that happen outside of their soil, right? So it's more subtle. It's more a gradual spotting, assessing, hey, we have a business opportunity for you over in Beijing. Why don't you fly over there and they'll take care of that? After a year of recruitment, that's how, how they work. But they're very comfortable using co-optees and non-traditional collectors to be able to facilitate those relationships. I'm also struck by the openness which some of this stuff happens, right? So I know you can't talk about specific cases, but if you read the the Maria Butina 
indictment, right? The fact that it was so open, right? The fact that she would walk in, right, as a as a Russian and try to influence somebody as opposed to recruiting an American to do that for you, which would be the traditional approach. The openness of this is interesting to me. It is. And, and I will say that it's important for all Americans, Mike, to read that indictment. I think the complexity of that indictment and how open it is and how strategic it was, we have to, as a society, understand this happens. But I'll go back to the start of the conversation on, on the Russian illegals case, Mike. Out of those individuals that we arrested and sent back to Moscow, majority of them were, quote unquote, Russian illegals, you know, but two of them were special agent operators. You know, if you look at, you know, some of them that were, you know, they actually went through the academy, they came here and they were in true name, right? So I think that success of those two individuals, I think you see the, the progress now with Maria here. They realize that opportunity, hiding in plain sight, has the ability to work here in the U.S. with open society, and it's proved itself that case. So Anna Chapman was not an illegal. She was a special agent. Bill, one of the things you've been talking about publicly a lot that I want you to talk about again, because I think it's really important, is um, supply chain, the risk associated with supply chains when it comes to foreign intelligence services. So I, I believe, Mike, it's one of the core things that we have to do better at, not only in the government, but as a whole country. And I think the threat supply chain we've hidden in the intelligence community for too many years, right? It's not just an intelligence community threat. It's more importantly outside the intelligence community. So our ability to buy and procure and acquire the equipment that makes our businesses run, our weapon systems deliver, and our weapons work, there's a supply chain there that we have not fundamentally protected over time. And I think we're really having a lot of success making that conversation known. But how we get to a point, and you look at what happened last year with Kaspersky, and DHS getting to a point, working with the intergovernment agencies to do a binding directive was a big step in a direction that we need to take as a government and then as a whole society saying, your product is no longer viable in this country because of the threat that it poses. And we have the same issue with many Chinese companies. That's correct. The other thing that you talk about a lot is uh, the insider threat. To me, uh, the number one priority we have is the insider threat. And, and I'll say that, uh, Mike, not only in the government intel- insider from from our world that we've had in our agencies over time, but in private sector, right? So again, General Electric just had the FBI arrest one of their employees for as an insider threat two weeks ago, right? Yeah, it continues every day. It's vicious, it's pervasive, and the efforts are catastrophic. If you want to talk about Snowden, you can talk about him being a leaker or whatever. He was an insider threat, right? So our ability to identify individuals who can cause us harm on any given day is our utmost importance. And it's not just individuals who hurt us from, a, from an espionage perspective. So it's they've those, actually been recruited by a foreign intelligence service right, to work for or them. Well, they're not. Because we have now, I find it much easier, Mike, to be that person when you don't have to throw your do, uh, documents over the transom to the Russian embassy, right? You have WikiLeaks and all these leaktivist organizations out there, hacktivist organizations who will broker that data for you. And then you could say, I'm angry. I gave this information to WikiLeaks, but I'm not a spy. Well, the damage is just as catastrophic because the Russians and Chinese get that data. So what motivates these folks to do what they do? That's a great question. And and I will say that as we go through now, Mike, uh, where we are trying to reform the way we do security clearance processes and we're uh, helping vet individuals, one, the first thing we're looking at is risk. What is the risk we're trying to prevent? And what we've identified is we looked at all these cases over the last 20 years and we look, can we, could we have identified that the individual will have gone bad before we hired them? The answer is no. So something happens on the job. And as continuous evaluation, as you know how that works, really it has an impact of how we monitor folks. 
But until we can get into the, the, the mind from a behavioral perspective of what the catalyst is that in, endangers us and it makes that individual go bad, we're never going to be able to solve the insider threat. And I think the insider threat have to be in, in a global perspective. It's not only the, the Snowdens and, and the Hansons and Ames and the, and the seven people arrested this past year, but it's also that individual who wakes up tomorrow with a weapon wants to come to work and do violence, right? The Navy Yard shooting. Those are also insider threats. So to get to the left of the event is where we really need to be. We do a great job. We spend a lot of money doing auditing and monitoring of our employees. That's great. That'll prevent the bleeding afterwards, but we need to stop the cut. And I think we have to get there with more of a behavioral mindset of how we prevent insider threats. And, and is there, are there generational issues here? Great question. So we looked at this the last year. We looked at, uh, looked at it hard. We found over the last 10 years or so, no generational issues, no generic Xers, no Y chromosome, X chromosome, no male, female, no age issue, no agency issue. If you look at just the last two years, the 15 or so people have been arrested all over the map, right? I think and those are just the folks that we went through legal process on with an arrest or indictment. Look at all the cases that are going on now. And historically, we go from the Myers family all the way down to reality winner. So you have a broad spectrum, which makes it more difficult to help identify what the rationale is for someone to go bad. Bill, you, uh, you run the National Insider Threat Task Force. What is that? What does it do? So the, the Insider Threat Task Force is uh, co-chaired by us and by the Department of Justice. So in reality, the DNI is a co-chair and the Attorney General is a co-chair. It was set up after 2010, after Manning, the leaks with WikiLeaks. And uh, so the task force sits in my shop. It's a conglomeration of not only uh, experts from multiple agencies, but contractors to help drive national policy on insider threat programs, what the minimum requirements are, what what is a... Um, maturity model look like for your agency, as well as what are the best practices for private sector. It's a, it's a great model based off of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Bill, you've been very generous with your time. I just have three more questions. And, and I get asked this first question a lot, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch it to you. If you look at what foreign intelligence services do to us, how do you compare and contrast that with what we do to them, right? We're in the same business, but at the end of the day, there's there's some key differences. There's some key differences, and I think this is the, the whole uh, glass houses uh, aspects. First of all, I want to start this question off, Mike, by saying when I get to see what we do offensively as a country, it's amazing. Right? I'd say offensively we're as good as we've always been in the world, but we do it for the, the specific reasons we do our counterintelligence and counterespionage in that espionage spy world. We don't move it or enable that window to economic espionage or destructive capabilities in someone else's infrastructure, which is the difference between us as a civilized society with an, and the other side of it is we don't need anything economically from our adversaries. So we just don't. So I think the ability for us to play fair is not only our best postured venue, but it also hurts us the most. Second question, Bill, is what is the role of your center vis-a-vis what CIA does on the counterintelligence side and then what the Bureau does on the counterintelligence side? Great question. So the Bureau, obviously, we'll say for this audience, is domestic here and protect the the national security of the U.S. The CIA is OCONUS and and collects intelligence around the world and identifying the plans and intentions of foreign leaders and governments, right? Uh, What we do for the community and the government, Mike, is set national policy and strategy for which we want them to do things. Right. So we would like you, from a national perspective, intelligence community, to collect as many soda cans and glass bottles as you can. But we don't tell them how to do it. Right. And so you go do your mission. But we want to. And then once a year, we'll bring you back in to say, how are you measuring up to the money that you get from the ODNI, as well as the national priorities we set? 
with your own core mission. So we, I would say from, from that perspective, we're more a policy and strategy organization, 100,000 foot view, and we don't get into the implementation or the practices of how agencies do their business. A big part of your mission seems to be to get out, talk about the threats the country's facing from foreign intelligence services, particularly the private sector. That's correct. So I think the unique authorities I have vested in me by Congress uh, is that, you know, there's three big constituents, the intelligence community, the NT50s, the federal government, and the private sector. And I look at uh, my role personally as that conduit for the FBI, CIA, NSA to be that vocal point out in the private sector and drive some of the uh, issues and constructs that they can't because of operational issues. And then, Bill, the third and perhaps the most important final question here, I think, is if you were in a room with the nation's top CEOs and you walked through the threats and they said to you, okay, Bill, we got it. We understand. What can we do about it? What would you tell them? And and it's funny, I get to do this, right? And the answer is uh, have a holistic security posture. Include the folks that you would not think of in your CISO, your CSO, your CIO, include your acquisition and procurement folks. Because I tell them, this is how we do things around the world. And we look at China and Russia getting into our acquisition programs. They're not usually part of the enterprise-wide security apparatus from the CIA. The supply chain The issue. supply chain issue, right? Understand that you, you have an obligation to not only your company, your board of directors, your stockholders, to protect that brand. And then as well as protect the people who buy your brand, you have an obligation to them. And you can't fulfill that obligation unless you have a holistic mindset to how you're going to protect that proprietary data or trade secret that you make. I've also seen you talk about you can have the best cybersecurity defense on the planet, but if you haven't brought your chief of HR in because of the insider threat problem, you're not protecting your company. It's not even close. And, I, and I'll say the three areas that I think, to answer your question on the C, CEO aspect, human resources, procurement, and acquisition. You have to pay attention to those. And then tangent to that, your security cannot be a loss leader. Security must be part of your mission now. When now when that is whether you're in you're the intelligence community, but you're making something, you're a Fortune 100 company, security has to be part of your mission. Otherwise, you won't have a mission. So we in the government do, I still consider myself in the government, I shouldn't, but I do. And so we do this thing called continuous monitoring, mm-hmm. which you mentioned before. Do you see that taking root in the private sector or is that a step too far? I do see it. And I see it often. I think in the defense industrial base, it happens quite often. Uh, there's currently over 400,000 Americans who are cleared at the top secret level that don't work for the government. One third of our population in the cleared community. Uh, They are most likely going through that same auditing and monitoring right now. Uh, I think as we get outside of that defense industrial base, it gets harder for the attorneys to rationalize why we want to monitor our employees. So I do think there's an artificial wall between the government and defense industrial base and the rest of the United States. So I think that would be a a hard challenge to get that out there. But I do see an incredible uh, proliferation of insider threat programs outside of our community across America, understanding that insider threat program uh, is critical. Now, that comes with different aspects, human resources being number one, but the monitoring of their emails and capabilities is probably a bridge too far, but at least they're now understanding they have to have a fundamental understanding of the people they employ. Yeah, yeah. Just one final question because I just thought of it. You're a big advocate for reforming the way people get clearances in the U.S. government. Can you talk about that a yep. bit? So we've uh, started the process of two things, Mike. One is reducing the extensive backlog of inventory. 
Uh, we put a new uh, memo out. Which is out. huge, right? It's huge. It's, huge. Uh, it was over 750000 We put a new memo out with some radical changes of how we actually implement these for the practitioners. Uh, I think we're down about 10% already. So I think we're in the uh, high 600s. So that, we're making progress there. The second part of the issue, what we call Trust the Workforce 2.0, is re-looking a blank slate of how we're going to vet folks moving forward. And we're going to look to have a rocket clearance. You know, get somebody cleared in a couple of days. There's no rationale in my mind. We can't have somebody cleared at a secret level in a couple of weeks and a top secret level in less than 60 days. There's no rationale. I think we can get there. We've had a number of executive steering groups. We're well on our way to understanding uh, we have to minimize all those crazy tiers and what we have a top secret versus secret. We should have trusted, secret, and top secret, right? And then the differences are just a couple more checks. And I think once we get the inventory down to a more workable level, we'll be able to facilitate that. My argument is, so we have 4 million folks in the U.S. who are cleared, clearance holders, Mike. 3.5 million are in DOD, mm. right? So when we look at the numbers, and I would say for every single serviceman who comes on board and works in the Marine Corps and are at Camp Pendleton, they're getting a secret clearance. So we need to either not do that in the future, right, and only clear them when they need to have that clearance, or we need to have the ability to do that in 48 hours, right, because that takes the inventory someplace else. Well, this will be music to the ears of all of those recent college graduates who are waiting for jobs in the, in the intelligence and, and community. Let me add, if I might, uh, I think we're also looking at, I think, I'll call it a 2020 factor. So why can't the CIA hire a rock star uh, woman from a college at 25 years old, have her work, in the DO or Intel for five, six years, let her go out to Google and Microsoft for four or five years and then come back. We need to do more of that. We, we no longer can we ask uh, folks to think about a 30 year career. At the same time, we have to find a way to get that 25 year old to come to work every day without their cell phone. Yeah. That's our big challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you. You're welcome, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Bill Evanina. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Why? Why? If you Why? have T Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T Mobile prioritizes certain T Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 